Hey, good afternoon. Um, if you're a visitor, my name's Ian. I'm one of the leaders of the church here, and um, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, let's just bow for a moment, shall we, and we'll pray and uh, ask God to help us. Father God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that it is the Word of God, your Word, your living Word. And Father, we pray as we gather as a church family around your word, we pray that you would be present with us now by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in that way that only you can. In in the recesses of our hearts, we pray that you would draw near and that we would know your help and strength and encouragement and challenge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're excited today uh, to begin a new series. Um, We're thinking about the life of David and uh, what a life David's life was. Um, He was the youngest of eight brothers. That's a trauma in itself, isn't it? Um, He began life as a humble shepherd near Bethlehem and rose to become Israel's greatest ever king, a gifted poet and musician, giant slayer, mighty warrior, legendary leader. And yet, at the same time, the Bible as a whole never flatters its heroes or glosses over their failures. David made some terrible mistakes and had some very deep character flaws And his life was a messy mixture of some incredible triumphs and some profound tragedies. But despite all of this, David is twice described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect, but he did have a soul that could be touched by truth. He wasn't afraid to face and admit his sins and weaknesses. He was a strong man, and yet he had a humility and tenderness and sensitivity of spirit. Today is very much an introduction, and we'll begin properly next week, if you can come back then. We're going to begin next week in 1 Samuel 16. You'll find the life of David in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 16 is the story of the prophet Samuel anointing David as a teenager to be a future king of Israel. So this this week, I want to introduce this series, and my aim is to give you a clue as to where we're going with it. So slightly odd uh, this this week. Uh, First of all, I want us to see this afternoon that David's life is a great example of what we might call character formation. And we're going to spend most of our time this afternoon, if you've got one of the programs there, we'll spend most of our time thinking about this idea of the development and shaping and forming of a character here as shown in David's life. But we did read, Louise read to us there from Psalm 23, and I want you to see also from David's own words that his life ultimately and actually points us to the one who formed his character. And that's important 
These stories in the Bible are not Aesop's fables. I I said that to one of my kids and they didn't know what an Aesop's fable was. And some some of you are shaking your heads. Ask me afterwards. Uh, These stories in the Bible are not legendary myths that are meant to teach us some moral truth. And that's important. The reason these stories are in the Bible is not because they're saying, be like David or don't be like David. These stories in the Bible, because they are pointing us ultimately to David's God. So hopefully we can think about character formation. And then at the end, we'll just think about um, how David's life and his character formation points us to the God who forms our characters. So first of all, the life of David is a great example of character formation. There we go. We're already there. Uh, I came across a staggering claim this week. Tim Keller, an American author, pastor, uh, claims that what we read of David's life in the Bible, I quote, is the longest narrative presentation of a single human life in all of ancient literature. It is the most comprehensive and greatest account in all antiquity about what makes or breaks an individual human life. That, that's an amazing claim. Keller is claiming there that there's no other person in ancient human history whose life is recorded for us in such detail, either inside the Bible or outside the Bible. The character of David in ancient literature is unique. And I want you to notice that last phrase of Keller's there. This is the most comprehensive and greatest account in all antiquity about what makes or breaks an individual life. When I was a young Christian, I came across a book on the life of David uh, that was deeply influential for me. Um, It was written by a man called Alan Redpath. My original copy is in the church office. I lent it to Luke, and I didn't realize that quite a lot of the pages had fallen out because it had been so read. So Luke was, re- he was looking up what he was going to be preaching on later and the, the very pages that he needed to read were missing. So I, he didn't know that I bought another copy on Amazon that's a newer copy and there's no pages missing in this one. I'll have to lend it to Luke. The Making of a Man of God, Lessons from the Life of David by a man called Alan Redpath. He's dead now. He was a pastor in Edinburgh and in Chicago in the United States. In, in this book, Redpath is really talking about how God shaped and developed David's character throughout his life. And in this new series on the life of David, that's really what I want us to focus on. This idea of character formation, or as Keller put it, what is it that will make or break your and my individual lives? Let me begin with a simple definition. Uh, I say it's simple. There's three clauses here. Here's a little definition. In his good and faithful love, God shaped and developed David's character in and through the circumstances of his life. I hope, in a way, that statement will summarize this series as we look at all the colorful escapades that David is involved in as we see the different things, his triumphs, his failures. I want us all to see something of how God faithfully worked 
even in David's failures, in every single day of his life, his good days, his bad days, to change him and to shape his character. I think it would be helpful for us to just say two simple things about why character matters. I I don't know about you, I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I think about the political sphere in our society. I, I, I wonder whether we talk about character as much as we should. And we'll, we'll no doubt say more about these things in the weeks to come, but this is just by way of introduction. First of all, character is about what we are on the inside rather than what we look like on the outside. As I said, the narrative of David's life, you can find it mainly in 1 and 2 Samuel. There's some other books in the Bible where some of David's life are recorded, 1 Chronicles particularly. And during this period, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, goes from being very tribal and led by leaders called judges to a united monarchy ruled by kings. The first king you may know was called Saul. And the Bible tells us that Saul was strikingly tall. Tall Saul. He was head and shoulders, it says in the Bible, above other men. He looked like a king. He was strong. He was powerful. But even though he looked like a king, and even though the nation of Israel followed him because he looked like a king, it quickly became clear that he wasn't very kingly on the inside. He looked like a king, but his character wasn't kingly. God ultimately rejected Saul as king and sent the prophet Samuel to anoint Saul's replacement. We'll look at this more next week, but Samuel is fooled. He goes to the family of a man called Jesse near Bethlehem. And he continues to look for the sons of Jesse who look like Saul. He looks for the strong ones, the handsome ones, the tall ones, the fit ones. And God has to say to him in 1 Samuel 16, famous verse, 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, God says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his heart, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It is true, isn't it, that often we are more concerned about what we look like on the outside than with how our characters are on the inside. I think very often we care more about what people think we look like on the outside than we do about our character. It's interesting, isn't it, in the Gospels, Jesus reserves his harshest criticism for those who care more about the outside than the inside. You remember when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees Here's one one translation of the Bible puts it like this. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the teacher of the law. He says to them, you're hopeless. You religious scholars and Pharisees, 
frauds. You're like manicured grave plots, grass clipped, flowers bright, but six feet down, it's all rotting bones and worm-eaten flesh. People look at you and think you're saints, but beneath the skin, you're total frauds. Character is about what we are on the inside rather than what we look like on the outside. Secondly, I want to say this, that character is about why we do the things we do as much as it is, as much as it is about what we do. One of the issues we face, I think, in our political life is the idea that the end justifies the means Often we'll say what someone does in their private life is none of our business, and so long as they're good at their job and get things done, what they do in their private life is fine. But actually, our motives do matter. Why we do the things we do crucially affects the value of what we do. It is entirely possible for you and I to do good and right things with a bad self-centered motive and that can change the good thing that we do into a bad thing if we do something for a poor reason in the new testament there's a famous passage where paul speaks of love we read it recently at giant hannah's wedding and paul talks about in a sense, the pointlessness of doing the right things with the wrong motives. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. When I read that, I want to say, ouch. The challenge here is that you and I can even be in church doing churchy things with churchy people in a churchy way. But if there's no inner love motivating those activities, Paul says we're just making a big noise and gaining nothing. So when we talk about character, I want to make this clear at the beginning. What what, what we're talking about here is inner integrity, and we're talking about our motivations Recently, we were thinking about, this should be an encouragement to us as well as a challenge. We were talking recently about the lady who came to the temple in Jerusalem and she gave two pence. And what made that different for Jesus as he observes? What was it? It was her motivation in what she gave that made the gift unique and special. So let's go back to our definition here on the screen. And I want us to see three things about David's character formation. Um, First of all, I want to suggest that it took time. 
David, as we'll see, was anointed or set apart by God to be Israel's king, the king who would replace Saul when he was only a teenager. We don't know exactly how old. Some commentators think he was 15. Some say 17. He was definitely younger than 20 because once, once guys got to 20, they were in national service and in the army. And he goes to visit his brothers, as we'll see. So he can't have been 20. He must have been somewhere in his mid to late teens. But David didn't actually become king until he was 30 years old. So for 15 years, or the best part of 15 years, his character formation is, is, is going on. And it continued long after he became the king as well. I don't, would you agree with me that one of the greatest challenges I think we face in our modern society is our impatience? If my internet is slow, sometimes I'm, I'm having a meltdown. If a page takes more than three seconds to load. We want things to happen immediately and instantly. If they don't happen instantly, we quickly lose interest and move on to the next thing. We want things now. And I, I think one of the challenges for us is that we don't know how to wait. We don't know what patience looks like. One of the things I hope we'll see in this series is that unlike us often, God is playing the long game. God is playing a long game. God is not in a hurry. God is not some kind of stress head who's impatient and always in a rush. He is building and forming and developing and shaping. And the quality of God's workmanship is seen in the time and patience he takes over his work. On, on the back of this copy, this new copy of Red Pass book, it says here, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. In other words, it only takes a moment for you and I to become a Christian, but it takes a lifetime for our characters to form by God's grace. A person becomes a child of God the moment they turn from sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus who died for our sins and rose again. But that's the beginning of a journey of gradual growth in grace and love and faith and character that takes a lifetime. Secondly, I want to suggest to you that David's character formation required God's initiative. David's whole story reflects something of God's faithfulness, God's loving care. God chose David when he was a nobody, not because he was a somebody. And David's life isn't the story of David heroically holding on to God. The story of David's life, as we'll see, is of God faithfully holding on to him. But I, I want to say something here about God's initiative. We are 
sinners. We, we need God's forgiveness. But I want to say to you that that isn't the end of the gospel. Very often I think we can view the gospel almost as if God is kind of coming to us and giving us a free pass. But in the gospel, God is not just letting us off. He is powerfully lifting us up. The gospel is not just about forgiveness. It's also about transformation. God is not just, sometimes I think we feel we might like this to be the case, God is not just aiming at taking away our fears and making us comfortable and secure and safe. He is aiming at enlarging and expanding our hearts. He's aiming at making us into the people he created us to be. God is aiming at increasing our faith, making us more like Jesus, his son, and enabling us to enjoy him and find our strength and hope and joy in him rather than in other things. In his faithful kindness and love, God saves us in order to grow us. So we mustn't think that God's initiative is only about making us comfortable. God desires to form our characters in the same way he desired to form David's. Thirdly, I want us to see that David's character formation grew by God's grace over time out of his day-to-day ordinary circumstances. One writer I came across said this, character is not built in a classroom, but in the circumstances of life. The formation of David's character took time and it took God's initiative, but it happened in the circumstances of his life. We'll see as we go through 1 Samuel that very often these realities were hard for David. He was truly secure in the loving purposes of God, but there is no sense in which David was wrapped up by God in cotton wool. God cared about David's heart and his motives and his character growth more than merely his comfort. God allowed hard experiences to come into David's life, not to crush him, but to form him. I I think you could think of David's life like a compass. Um, if, if If you give a compass a shake, The needle wobbles around and points all over the place. But once you stop shaking, the needle always comes back to to point north, magnetic north. It seems to me that David is often thrown around and shaken. But God always brings him through and enables his heart to point towards the goodness of God rather than somewhere else. Let me just quickly give you a couple of examples. We'll see 
We've read one of them today. David wrote many psalms. And some of them arise directly out of the experiences that we're going to think about. So, and I, I was coincidentally just reading some of these in my own devotions this week. Just turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 52. Page 574, if you've got one of the Red Church Bibles there. Psalm 52. And you will see in the little header above the actual body of the psalm, that it tells us when David wrote the psalm. And we'll look at this. It, it says here, in very, very tiny print, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. What, what's, we'll get to that. What's going on here? is that David is betrayed by one of Saul's spies. David's on the run from Saul, who at this point is trying to kill him. And this man, Doeg, basically grasses him up to Saul and tells Saul where he's hiding. But look with me. You, you, can, you can read that psalm, but look with me at verse 8. In the midst of this pressure, in the midst of this hardship, in the midst of this betrayal... David says, but I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And listen to this, and I will hope in your name. Why? For your name is good. You could go with me to Psalm 54 on the same page. It's not Doeg this time. It's a whole clan called the Ziphites. They basically grasp David up. And he says exactly the same thing in verse 6. I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord. Why? For it is good. In the midst of the pressure, while he's on the run being persecuted by Saul... In anguish, David pours out his heart to God and says, God, I'll trust you. Your name is good. These circumstances are terrible, but you and your name are good. In verse 4, David says, Surely God is my help, and the Lord is the one who sustains me. David's character grows as he builds on what he knows to be true about God in the face of difficult circumstances. Let me just show you a couple of uh, slides here. I, I think sometimes our natural logic works like this. Here's some building blocks. Think of your life in terms of building blocks. You build on these thoughts. I, I, I think often our logic works like this. Mine does sometimes. We begin with, my circumstances are terrible. And then we think, that must mean that God can't be with me. And then we build other assumptions on top of that that lead to, man, it's all going to go pear-shaped. We start with the circumstances. We assume that God has left us. And we end thinking that it's all going to go wrong. And we're in despair. The person who thinks like that is beginning with the difficulty and building on that 
and it ends in despair. And that could have been David. Understandably, it could have been David, even in just these two examples. Everything started so well for him. Anointed to be the king. He ends up running away because the king hates him. It's unfair. It's desperately difficult. He loses his job, his home. He has to leave his wife and friends. He loses contact with some of his closest friends and ends up on the run in the hills. But if David had built like this, we'd have never heard of him. His circumstances would have conquered him. And yet in Psalm 23, that Louise read to us, David does exactly the opposite. He learns to start with God. Psalm 23, verse 4, David says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. David starts with the reality that God is with him. That enables him to say, I don't need to fear evil even when I'm walking through the darkest valley. This is so important, isn't it? David has to stop and think and talk to himself and apply what he knows about God to his own situation. The interesting thing in 1 Samuel is that it's not the difficulties themselves that make the difference. David's nemesis Saul faced difficulties of his own too. But in Saul's life, they only served to make him bitter and angry and hard. So for David, it wasn't, it wasn't the difficulties themselves it, it, it was his looking for God's purposes in those difficulties that changed him and formed his characters, his character. I, I, I want to say to you that your, your difficulties, and I want to be sensitive here, some of our difficulties are very hard. My, my own difficulties, our difficulties are not a proof that God is absent our difficulties are an opportunity for our faith and trust in God to be strengthened and deepened. I wasn't going to do this because I didn't think we'd have time, but I will anyway, so I apologize in advance. I was going to, I'm going off peace. I was going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Do you know 1 Peter chapter 1? Let's turn to it very quickly. I want to turn here because I want you to take this home. And remember it and meditate on it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, there's an amazing passage at the beginning as Peter introduces this letter where he, he does exactly what we've been saying. Let, let me read to you from verse 3. We'll, we'll be brief with this. Peter begins in verse 3 
with a crescendo of praise, if you like. Listen to Peter here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. You couldn't be more secure. David is speaking of God's past forgiveness, his present presence, future hope. And then he says, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. How does that work? greatly rejoicing at the same time that you're suffering grief. What a mixture of emotions that is. Utterly secure and yet facing difficulties. And Peter says, why? Why does this happen? Verse 7, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The picture here is of a foundry and a metalsmith, a goldsmith, and the metal goes into the crucible, the heat comes on, and the impurities rise to the top so that the goldsmith can scrape them off, and the gold is purer than it was at the beginning. For Peter, these difficulties come not as a sign that God is absent, but as part of God's loving, faithful character formation. Sometimes when we are facing challenging situations, our instinct is to pray for the circumstances to change. And I've prayed like this. It's not wrong to pray like this, but our instinct is, oh Lord, take it away. I wonder whether I and we have considered that maybe God is using our circumstances to change us. One writer I came across said that true character is shown in this. Do we pray for God to lighten our burdens or do we pray for God to give us stronger backs? David's character formation took time. It depended on the faithful, loving care of God. And it worked through his daily circumstances. I think one of the things we can learn from the life of David is that our salvation is free but the formation of our characters takes time and is often costly and can be painful. Let's, uh, let's try and wrap up as we look to the second point more briefly. Psalm 23 that we read earlier, the life of David in his own words. Here, here, here's the deal. We, we could summarize this period of history as one in which The the video alluded to this that we saw earlier. This is a time in which the nation of Israel 
was searching for a true king. A king that would rule with justice. A king that wouldn't be selfish or brutal. A king that wouldn't use their power just for selfish ends, but would use their power for the benefit of the people. Samuel hoped it would be told so. And when God rejected Saul, Samuel wept when Saul failed. David, we're told, was a man after God's own heart, but even he wasn't the true Messiah. This whole history that we're going to look at, the subplot is, the question is, who is the true king? It wasn't David, it isn't any of us. The whole narrative points to Jesus as the true king. Tim Keller, some good advice for us as you read this narrative and study this over the next few weeks. Don't draw a line from David straight to you. When we're applying these texts, let's make sure that we draw a line from David to Jesus and then to you and then to us. That's good advice, I think. Jesus is the true king that David points to. And he's the only one who has the power to change our hearts. When we we look at David and draw a line from him to us, we see an example and we see warnings, and it might inspire us for a while, maybe for a few weeks. But when we draw a line from David to Jesus, what we see in Jesus is not just an example to follow. We experience his redeeming, transforming power. Over the last few weeks, we've heard from various people who've been sharing their stories, their testimony, of how they came to faith in God. It's been brilliant. All kinds of different people, different stories. I I think Psalm 23, in a way, we, we should have an interest thought. We could invite David to come and give his testimony. Psalm 23 would be his little three minute Slot. It's not long enough to be three minutes, is it? As David reflects on his life and all the difficulties we're going to look at, all the ups and downs and the traumas, Psalm 23 is his story. And it's a simple song of confidence and joy and hope in God. I just want, we could spend, I, I, we, we're not going to go through it all. I just want to make two observations. The first one is this. Here we go. David belonged to the shepherd. The reason David's character was formed by God was because he could say, the Lord is not a shepherd or the shepherd, but my shepherd This is a statement of belonging. David is saying in Psalm 23, I belong to another. I belong to a good and loving shepherd. And that means that whatever happens to me in my life, I I lack nothing. I lack nothing that I really need and ultimately need He will refresh me. 
he'll guide me, he'll restore me, he'll replenish me, he will protect me and keep me safe, even in the midst of all kinds of evil intent. So I want to say to you, if if you're not a Christian today, surely the first step here is for you to come and embrace this Christ as your shepherd to turn from yourself and turn to him, the one who died to make you his own. But I just want to go to the end of the psalm and say something to those of you who are a sheep. I just want to close by looking at verse 6 with you. If you are his sheep, If you can say today, the Lord is my shepherd, verse 6, the promise of verse 6 is yours. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. At the end of this simple little psalm, the height that David gets to is that his life has so come under the careful, detailed, powerful, and specific love of God that he doesn't want to move house. He is perfectly satisfied. Why would I want to be in a different field, David's saying? Why would I want to be in a different house? Why would I want to be under the care of a different shepherd? Nothing can be as good as this. Field or house or shepherd. And that's precisely what he says there in verse 6, isn't it? I don't want to leave this house. I've been happy here. I'll be quite content to live in this house forever and be eternally grateful and happy. While the Lord is my shepherd, dark days may come. But no difficulty can arise, no dilemma emerge, no seeming disaster can descend on my life without eventual good coming out of that chaos. Our English translation here is not really strong enough. When it says, surely your goodness and love will follow me, I I think that's a bit weak. It sounds like goodness and love are like ambling along behind us, drifting, you know. They might catch us up. Surely goodness and mercy will lag behind me all my days. Psalm 23 doesn't say that. The Hebrew word is much more active than follow. It almost means pursue. Often the word is used in the sense of someone pursuing them to do harm or persecute them. The sense here is that God is on the move, not just passively following. He is deliberately and energetically pursuing his people with goodness and love. He is chasing them down, not to punish them, but to pour out his kindness on them. I think David's painting a little picture for us here. Just imagine with me that you're driving down the M1. And suddenly, as you pass Junction 33, you see the red lights flashing in the rearview mirror and the policeman is chasing you down. I'm not talking about me here. 
obviously. And in that crazy moment, actually, I'm talking about me. In that crazy moment, you make the irrational decision to accelerate instead of slow down. I did this one, not on the motor, I did this once when I was 18, when I'd only just learned to drive. I tried to run away from a police car. And I got stuck. I, oh man, it was embarrassing. He was very kind, but I did get punished. Anyway, you're on the motorway, and instead of slowing down, you speed up 100 miles an hour. Your only wish is to get away from that policeman. Adrenaline kicks in, the guilt mounts. You know now that if he catches you, your life is over, license taken away but his car's faster than yours. And despite driving like Lewis Hamilton, the police car catches you and he forces you over onto a hard shoulder and you sit there trembling as the police guy gets out of his car. You know you're not meant to get out of yours. And he walks behind and you, you wind your window down and with a smile, the policeman says, are you feeling guilty? And then he pulls a wallet out of his pocket and he says, you left this on the reception desk at the hotel that you just left and they asked if I would catch you up to give it you back and as you reach out sheepishly to take the wallet the policeman with a smile says one more thing they asked me to tell you that they entered you into a drawer with the other residents in the hotel and you've you you won a free trip to New York but you've got to phone your acceptance by noon today that's why I was chasing you I think when we read verses like this, that is the kind of image we need to keep in our minds. Often our difficulties arise because our vision is filled with problems and difficulties rather than being filled with God. We feel like God is pursuing us in order to punish us when actually he's pursuing us in mercy and goodness to lavish his kindness on us. As David reflects on his life here in Psalm 23, he, he ends up coming to the conclusion that he, he actually doesn't want God for the things he can get out of God. He wants God more than anything else because of who God himself is. He wants God just to know him and enjoy his presence. And in the end, God forms his character to the point where he's content to enjoy just being where God is. Let's pray.